0: And now hear God's holy word continuing in our study in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Uh, Listen now as the Shulamite, as the woman, describes her beloved feature by feature and listen for the uh, allusions or the references to the temple in her description of him. So from God's holy word, chapter 5 of Song of Songs. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousands. His head is like the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that illumines the word that he spoke uh, perfectly. Thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your word together. Help me to clearly and consistently speak Your Word without error. Deliver us from all distraction. Uh, remove from, from our time today anything that's not helpful. Uh, remove anything that's, that is in error, but direct our thoughts only to an adoration of our Savior and our response to Him as, as His people. So strengthen us by this time in Your Word, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, last week I briefly mentioned and referred to an ancient form of poetry known as the wasif, W-A-S-F. I think that's an Egyptian word, or uh, it's in English poetry called the blazon, B-L-A-Z-O-N or B-L-A-S-O-N. If you've studied uh, medieval poetry, you've run across a blazon or a, or a wasif. A blazon is an inventory of the features of your beloved, comparing each one of those features to something else that is equally as lovely. So your eyes are like pools of water, your skin is like porcelain, that, that sort of thing. This poetic style goes way back into antiquity. The Egyptians wrote wasifs to their lovers, and it's been, it's been popular throughout history. The Elizabethan poet Edmund Spencer wrote in a poem, her goodly eyes like sapphires shining bright, her forehead ivory white. It's a popular, it's a popular form throughout history. It's f- so popular and so well-known that Shakespeare in his day made a parody of the blazon and he discon- uh, deconstructed it in Sonnet 130. Here's Shakespeare um, making fun of the wasif or making fun of the blazon. He says, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun, Coral is far more red than her lips red. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. And in some perfumes there is more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. So, so even in his day, Shakespeare could deconstruct the, the blazon. But this method of declaring one's love is embedded. It's embedded in our poetic traditions. And uh, it's all over pop music. You, you can listen for it. Anytime a, a, a singer says, your love is like, or your face is like, or your eyes are like, they're drawing from this deep tradition. You know, she's a, she's a brick house, right? They're yeah, not going <laughs> to sing the whole thing. But that... Uh, that, that tradition is all over popular music. Um, the Song of Songs is this great opera that sings the story of the relationship between Lady Wisdom, the Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon, Lady Wisdom, and her beloved Solomon. It's, it's this opera that covers their courtship, their marriage, and it contains four Four blazons, four wasifs, as the Shulamite and her beloved, seeing of their attraction to each other, they compare each other's bodies to glorious, noble, delightful things. In the study, I've made reference to the um, to the fact that Revelation bears similar features to the Song of Songs. Revelation is also the story of a mighty bridegroom wooing and defending and preparing his bride, preparing her to wed him. And it, it ends with a great wedding feast, just like a wedding feast in uh, the Song of Solomon. It begins with a wasif or a blazon. It ends with a uh, come quickly. Revelation ends with come quickly. So does, so does Song of Solomon. So uh, I, I, find it, there's, I find it interesting that Revelation begins with uh, a blazon. Let me just read it to you. And, and you're familiar with this passage if you've read Revelation. I turn to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now here, here it is. His head and hair were white like wool. And white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Um, And then he falls down at his feet, as as we're dead. So it's a it's a it's a description of Almighty uh, Jesus in his in his glory and in his power feature by feature, describing him by something uh, glorious and and powerful and wonderful, which, again, is one of the many callbacks from Revelation to Song of Songs, which seems to confirm that, that we're correct in reading the Song of Songs as a reflection of the love between the mighty bridegroom Jesus and his bride, the church. Now, certainly, we, we must also read Song of Songs as uh, love poetry between uh, the Shulamite and her beloved, absolutely. But that, that doesn't eliminate the, the reading, the, the allegorical reading. We must also read it in, in that way. J- just as an aside, um, and I don't know what to do with this, but uh, it's worth pointing out, there's a, uh, an anti wassif Shakespeare doesn't have anything on John um, when uh, in, in Revelation 9, there's another, there's another blaze on, but it's, a, it's an ugly one. Um, out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. Lo- locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given powers. The scorpions of the earth have power. Um, and, and let's see, where's the um, where's the description of them? It starts in about verse verse seven. Here it is. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. So there's, a, there's another uh, embedded in Revelation. There's another blazon, but it's an ugly one, and it's describing something ugly. And uh, it's, it's just interesting to see that form pop up again there. And I don't know what to do with that, but I thought if, uh, that it was at least worth pointing out for your reflection. So it, so it helps to understand. The reason I point this out is not just to say, oh, that's a neat little piece of trivia, but to understand that this form that's used here in the Song of Songs is a prominent traditional form of poetry. Otherwise, we would be tempted to trivialize it and even make light of it and to think, oh, that's really silly. Uh, you've, you can go out on the internet and you've probably seen literalistic artistic renderings of what a woman would look like if her neck were literally a tower covered with shields, if her hair were literally like a flock of goats. You've probably seen those artistic drawings. And we think, you know, that, that doesn't sound... Uh, really, romantic, it sounds strange or even silly it wouldn 't sound particularly romantic if you told your wife your nose is like the tower of Babylon uh, t- tower of lebanon you, that wouldn 't sound romantic, but um, the key is, and the reason it 's important to understand this poetic tradition, the key is understanding every one of these poems um, is is giving us imagery. That that is relevant to the love between Yahweh and His people, between the King and His land, between Jesus and His church. Um, and, and so this woman, every time she's described by her beloved, she's described with pastoral scenes, vineyards, gardens. She's given geographic features of the land. Her lips, as we saw last week, her lips drop with milk and honey. She's a sanctuary space. She is the promised land. She is the secure place that God marked out for his people where he goes to dwell with them and meet with them. So so she's described like the place where the bridegroom comes to visit and dwell and set up his house. And when she describes him, as we just read a few minutes ago, she uses temple imagery. She describes him as the place where She goes to visit him where the bride goes to visit Yahweh. His body has marble pillars on gold bases. His body has supports and cedar beams and jewels and carved ivory. He's described with architectural imagery. It was the same architectural imagery that John read in the uh, gospel reading this morning. I just noticed the, the Pharisees describe all the ornate architecture. Well, that's the same ornate architecture that she uses to describe him. So she's a garden. He's a house. She's the land. He's the temple. So so not only is there this division of symbolism, but there's clear sexual differentiation. He has his glory. She has her glory. He has a masculine glory. Hers is a feminine glory. And there's no competition There's no subjugation, there's no mockery, there's no disrespect, just exaltation, just glorying in their different different beauty and their different loveliness. Uh, Also, um, if we don't think that these descriptions are particularly romantic or glorious or beautiful, it could be also because our concepts of beauty are out of order. Our concepts of beauty are not biblical or realistic at all. In chapter 7, Solomon describes uh, her belly as a heap of wheat, her navel as a goblet. Um, She has presence. She has girth. She has shape, which are her glory and beauty. Her husband delights in her shape, or whatever shape that is, whatever shape God has given her, he delights in that shape. And so you know, standards of beauty have changed throughout history. If you look at paintings from 500 years ago and paintings from 200 years ago, you see, you see standards of beauty change. But I'm not sure there's ever been a time like today uh, where those standards of beauty are actually impossible for real living human women, apart from plastic surgery and Photoshop, I don't know that real women can actually attain our culture standard of beauty. And one one indication of how warped we are is how different our view of age is from the Bible's view of age. Proverbs um, 16 says, gray hair is the crown of glory. That's what the Bible says. Gray hair is the crown of glory. And we think, you know, like 23, 24, that's the peak of beauty. Well, we're we're wrong. We're in error. and nothing against the uh, glory of a 23 or a 24 year old, man or woman. But, but the Bible says gray hair is the crown of glory. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was almost 90 years old when he goes to Egypt. And he is afraid for her that somebody's gonna notice her beauty and somebody's gonna take her from him. And that's why he sets up this deceptive plot to fool Pharaoh into thinking uh, she's his sister. And when, when, when they get into Egypt, indeed, everybody thinks she's really, really good looking, she's really lovely. And Pharaoh does try to take her. And she's almost, she's almost 90, and she's lovely. So something's missing, and something's out of whack with what we consider to be beautiful and lovely. Our, our modern standards of feminine beauty in particular are impractical and unbiblical. And I, and I wonder, you know, sometimes these standards are inflicted by mean, hateful, ungrateful comments of, of men, I, I recognize that, but I also wonder if sometimes if it's if it's not always inflicted by men on women, but by other women. Either either passively, women constantly comparing yourself to others all the time, or or if it's not passive but active, there's actual meanness or contempt or shaming or you know eye rolls or you know that that look of, of contempt. Ladies, I don't I don't live in your world, so I don't know, but I I think that I can speak for most godly men, and that what you think are your, your you think these are your imperfections, what you worry about and obsess over, that's not what your husband cares about. It's not really even on his radar, I would, I would guess, I would bet. And so you might be subjecting yourself to expectations that are not your husband's expectations, that are not even a biblical standard of beauty or glory or loveliness, but you're attempting for some reason to attain an image or, or just always in grief because you're, you feel like you can't attain this image, and it's all in this effort to somehow, in some strange way, impress not your husband, um, but to impress other women. Uh, this question is, is germane to our text this morning. The, the question of who you are trying to impress, that question comes up in one of the songs we're going to read this morning. So let's, let's hold on to that. So, so to recap... To catch us up on where we are in the opera, we began with the call of the woman for the kisses of her beloved. She wants intimacy with him, she wants face to face uh, communion with him, but she starts in difficult circumstances. She's put to forced labor, she's uh, ashamed of her skin. Her skin is dark from working out in the sun. Uh, she goes to find him. They exchange expressions of mutual attraction. There's a banquet where he falls asleep and she charges everyone don't wake him up. Don't let him, let him rest. And then the scene changes to him calling her away from her forced labor uh, and, and he delivers her to come out and dwell with him. And again, they meet face to face. There's another pledge of love, and this time she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, he's not there. She finds him gone. There's this tension throughout the song, as I pointed out last week, this tension throughout the opera of of this drawing near and pulling away, this presence and absence throughout, throughout the song. She goes to look for him. She finds him. Then we have the big wedding scene, the wedding procession. He comes and sets up house with her and that, that coming and establishing his house is compared to the Ark of the Covenant coming up out of the wilderness and being established in a temple and um, the building of the temple. There's a consummation of the marriage marked with his intimate wasif of marital love that we read last week, and that's where we ended. One thing I didn't get to, and I want to make sure just to spend a minute on it, is uh, his repeated reference to her as my sister, my spouse. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1 is the end of his marriage song to her. Um, But but we'll go ahead and read that. Chapter 5, verse 1. I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drank my wine with my milk. And he says to his friends, eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Uh, Several times he refers to her as my sister, my spouse. It may seem odd to us. Uh, You don't maybe think of your wife as your sister. You might not think of your uh, husband as your brother. But in Christian marriage, Indeed, your wife is your sister. Your husband is your brother under God. That's that's more than just a title. It comes with responsibilities. Eve was not only Adam's wife, but she was his sister. She was his friend. She was his companion, a daughter of God who assists him in his service and assists him in his worship before God. And so in Christian marriage, a woman must be both a spouse and a sister to her beloved. In the song that we read at the beginning, right before I prayed, right before I started, she ends this song. She says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So so a, a wife to her husband is not just a romantic partner, but she's a collaborator. She is his kin. She is his nearest relative. They have adopted each other into a new family. They are related. In the same way, um, a husband must be a brother to his wife, uh, which means that uh, at some level, you are, you are both accountable to God, your, your father. There's so many downstream applications, but notably, when things go sideways in marriage, Um, I often hear, you know, one or the other party say, you know, I just just don't, I just don't love her anymore. I, I just don't love him anymore. I can't find it in me to love him. Well, the fact is you're not just husband and wife, but the fact that your brother and sister calls you to your duty to love each other. What do you mean you don't love her? She is your sister in Christ. You're called to love your enemy. You're called to love your neighbor you can't love your sister? She's your sister and she's your your spouse. You, 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 what are you saying? You can't love your brother? Uh, John says in his epistle, "We know that we passed from death to life because we love the brethren." Okay, God requires you to love your brother. God requires you to love your sister, and there's there's a there's a, an element of friendship to the the marriage covenant that is essential to make it blessed and happy and um and a place of rest and peace. Uh, so, so if you haven't lately, if you haven't thought about it, it might be a good time to start pursuing friendship with your husband, to pursue friendship with your wife. Uh, because, because that's, I mean, this is God breathe. And she says, uh, he says, my sister, my spouse. She says, this is my friend. This is my beloved. This is my friend. And so that's an important uh, dimension to the marriage covenant. Well, After the wedding and after the wedding night, the Shulamite wakes up to find, once again, her beloved is not there. He's not in bed with her, but he's outside knocking when she wakes up. Once again, as soon as you have a moment of union and consummation in the song, in the story, just as soon as you get together, there's another separation. This scene bears some similarities to the previous one we read where she wakes up and finds him gone, but there are some significant differences. So let's pick it up in chapter five, verse two and read her song. She sings, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So you can hear him knocking. Sister, a love, dove, perfect one. You know, he keeps knocking and he keeps calling her and he calls her with different names. And she responds, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. On the handles of the lock, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. So he's not in bed with her. He's outside when she wakes up. She says my my um what does she say? My heart, yeah, I'm asleep but my heart is awake. You know, she she hears him before uh, she even wakes up. And he's out in the cold and damp knocking. His hair is wet. He wants to come in and dry off. He wants to come be with her, but she hesitates to open the door and he's persistently knocking. He's in a position now of seeking her. In the last story, she was looking for him, and now he's come to look for her, and she says, I can't get up to open the door for you. I can't get up to meet you. And, and after a while, he departs. She has delayed too long, and then she rushes out into the streets to find him, and again, just like in the last story, she encounters the watchman of the city. Now, this time, they assume that a woman out late at night by herself is up to no good. Remember in Proverbs we saw this is what Lady Folly does. Lady Folly goes out in the night lurking in the streets, looking for men that she can grab. Well, here's a woman. She's got a veil on. She's in the street. She's looking for a man. And so they take away her veil and they they beat her and they wound her. And so she calls out to the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find her beloved. Now, this scene of him standing at the door and knocking ought to remind you of something else from Revelation. I want to take at some point when I'm done with the study, I'm going to try to fold Song of Solomon together with Revelation. I'm going to do some deeper study because there are so many so many connections. Remember when Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's what, that's what Solomon is looking for here. He's looking for that same communion with his bride that Jesus looks for with his bride. But what is her excuse... That keeps her from going to the door. Now imagine this is not the bedroom door he 's not knocking on the bedroom door, but like the garden gate or the garden the, the door in the wall of the courtyard that he 's knocking at uh, because of the fact she doesn't want to get her feet dirty by walking to open the door. You think that she 's got to cross a courtyard or she has to cross you know, a garden to get to the door. Her excuse is. Um, that, you know, I I, I don't want to do that because I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? And I can can relate to that. You know, when you get home at night and you take off all your, you know, business stuff and all your work clothes, you put on a t-shirt and basketball shorts. Does anybody else do that? Or is that just me? You, you get down, and you just kind of sink into the couch and, you know, have something to read or something to watch. It's a hassle to get up and get dressed again. I get it. I don't want to get dressed again once I've done that. Well, she doesn't want to get dressed again. She doesn't want him to see her like she is. She's too modest for her husband. She's too modest. She's too prudish to let him see her like this, right? And I don't want to. I don't want to. I have to get dressed. I don't want to get dressed. She also says this, and this is really the zinger. She says, "I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? Her hands are dripping with myrrh. So she's been anointed. She's been ritually purified, and she doesn't want to become impure with the dirt of the courtyard. She doesn't have to wash her feet again. Now, who is she trying to impress? She has this obsession with presentation and purity that prevents her from going to her beloved. There's a standard that she has set for herself that he doesn't have. You know, he doesn't care if she has bedhead. He doesn't care if her feet get dirty. He wants to get in the house. But she is too pure to follow her lover into the night. Now, remember in the last episode, she was more bold. She took risks. She wasn't concerned about looking foolish. She wasn't concerned about looking scandalous. Uh, But now she'd rather stay in bed. He knocks. She has a responsibility. She has a duty to respond and to receive him and let him in. And so this seems to be a kind of a, a commentary or a critique on a certain obsession with purity that confuses the reality with the symbol. Uh, It it confuses the ritual and the reality. The the Pharisees, it's easy to see this all over the Pharisees, right? They had this obsession with purity that prevented them from recognizing the pure one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Uh, And and when when he was right in front of them, they were trying to maintain their own purity. So instead of listening to him, um, they, they criticized him for not washing his hands. Instead of delighting in his miracles, they criticized him for doing it on the Sabbath. Rather than receiving him as the true temple, they called him a blasphemer for what he said about the temple made of stone. They're the classic case of missing the forest for the trees. They're caught up in their own understanding of purity, their, their own extra biblical standards that Uh, they cannot get up and walk across the courtyard when he calls for fear of getting their feet dirty. So Jesus says to them repeatedly in so many different ways, he says, I'm the reality that all these things point to. You you don't hold on to the symbol when you have the reality. You you don't fast when the bridegroom is present. You aren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for you, right? In John's gospel, um, Jesus asks, who are you trying to impress here? Whose honor are you seeking? In John chapter five, Jesus says this, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. How can you believe who receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? You're seeking honor and praise and seeking the esteem And the applause of all the wrong people. I'm here, and you don't care about my honor. You don't care about uh, uh, about my esteem of you. All of these rituals, Jesus is saying, all these symbols point to me. I'm the one whose honor you need to seek, but you're ignoring me, and you're holding on to your own purity for what? For who? Whose honor do you desire? So they're looking for honor in all the wrong places. Um, Their standards uh, have this appearance of being really high. They, they, they appear to have really high standards, but in fact, their standards are way too low. Their standards are in the gutter. Uh, they have this appearance of rigor, but it's all fleshly power and strength. And Jesus corrects them. So see, the Shulamite here, the woman should be confident that if she gets her feet dirty in following him into the night, he'll wash her feet. He'll cleanse her. She is not more cleansed than when she's with him. It's impossible to be in a better state, in a better position than to be with him. His honor, obedience to him, is more important than her own sense of modesty, her own sense of purity. Jesus said this He said, It's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus says repeatedly, come to me and I will make you clean. You're not purifying yourself by yourself. It's not working. You're still dirty. Come to me and I'll purify you for real. And so he, he's calling her and, and, and the, the desire is here and the wish and the hope is that she recovers some of that zeal with which she pursued him before. Some of that selfless abandon. Like, I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to go find my beloved. I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, and so maybe you can help me. Maybe you can think about it. But, but it seems like this same mindset is present in a kind of affluent cultural Christianity, that, that, that kind of Christianity that set up its own standards that are not always biblical standards. There's a style of presentation. It's a very superficial, a very surface image-based purity, where it's clear to everyone what's accepted and what's not. I mean, you'll get the eye roll, you'll get the stare, you'll get the look if you don't match up, if you don't live up. There's this economy of honor and shame that's more driven by the fear of man than the fear of God. It's seeking honor from men rather than God, as Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. You see, it just doesn't matter if you're really pure. It's just important that you look pure by a certain definition it's all about appearances but there's no substance and and this is a false religion it's a christless purity it's a christless holiness which is in fact no holiness at all there's no purity to it and this false religion cannot weather hardship it cannot weather persecution it cannot weather any struggle it collapses like a cheap tent this fake plastic christianity cannot confess sins because it cannot admit weakness it cannot cry out in need it's all very buttoned up it's all very independent it's all very self-focused and self-absorbed and all very bound for hell because it has no christ jesus comes knocking and you're already set you're you're good you're already pure you're already modest you're already saved and you're pure enough on your own too pure to go out and meet him wherever he is, too pure to change anything that would get your feet dirty or take risks when he knocks. Well, we've, if, if this is evident, and, and I, I have this sense, and that's why I said, help me to articulate it and help me to think through it. It seems to be prevalent, especially especially in, in the South, where we, we kind of have this layer of, of niceness and this layer of, of charm, uh, over a very thick, uh, uh, burning wad of bitterness and contempt, and it needs to be repented of. Um, but because she ignores him, because of uh, the the Shulamite ignores him, uh, the way she doesn't go to him, he leaves. She goes out in the night to pursue him, and she's mistreated as a result. The daughters of Jerusalem ask her, is is he really worth all this trouble? Verse 9 of chapter 5, the daughters of Jerusalem sing, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? What's, What's up with this guy? Why are you so insistent on following this one? What makes him any different? And then she sings her wasif, her blazon that I read at the beginning, comparing him to the beauty of the temple. She adores his body. She can't get enough of seeing him. She can't get enough of hearing him. Verse 13, uh, he, she says, his lips are lilies dropping liquid myrrh. In verse 16, she says, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely she hangs on every word his words are sweet to her just as israel loved and was to love yahweh's law just as we love the word and the word incarnate so she rejoices in the words of his mouth so she convinces by singing the song she convinces the female chorus that he's worth pursuing and so then they ask well where is he that we may where is he that he may we may seek him chapter 6 verse 1 where is your beloved gone o fairest among women. Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? You sold us. We're coming with you. We're going to go find him. And so she responds in verse two. She sings, my beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. I, my heart skips a beat. I'm, I'm not even joking. When I say my heart skips, every time I read this and every time I come across this phrase that's been said before, I am my beloved and my beloved is, is mine. Um, like Psalm 95, he is the Lord our God and we are the people and the sheep of his pasture. Uh, he, the, Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. You understand that? The Lord is my shepherd. He's mine. I belong to him. He belongs to me. Um, there's this mutual possession. There's this, this mutual uh, consumption going on over and over. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul describes the marriage relationship this way. We read it just a few weeks ago. Paul says a husband doesn't belong to himself, but he belongs to his wife. And a wife's body belongs to her husband. A man's body belongs to his wife and a wife to her husband. Each wants the other. Each needs the other. Each has a right to the other. And here it's the same way. Each one of them needs the other one. There's the, this focused attention, this laser pointed direction of affection. This one, this one, this is the one I want. I don't want these others. Don't even talk to me about these others. They don't even exist. I don't care. I want this one, this woman, this man. He won't take anybody else. He just loves her. She loves and adores his body and he loves and adores hers. So she goes out to join him where the shepherd king feeds his flock and he breaks into song when he sees her come out where he is working. Verse four of chapter six. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins and none of uh, is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughter saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? You notice all the militant language? Twice he sings, you're as awesome as an army with banners, which means she is formidable. She has presence. She is as brave as chariots, Strong as two army camps, she, she responds to him. She says, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranate had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. And then he sings with his friends. He says, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And she says, what would you see in the Shulamite? As it were the dance of the two camps. And now we're not exactly sure what the dance of the two camps is, but it could be a reference to a military formation. She is a force. She is an army with banners. She's as brave as chariots. And so in the same way, the church As I've said so many times, the church is not a theology club. It's not, you know, this this group of, you know, just sentimental people who just share our feelings. The church is an army. The church is also formidable. The church is a force. And she's such a force, and she's so stunning that he's weakened by her stare. Have you ever seen somebody stare at you and you're like, I can't, I can't even look in your eyes. And he does the same thing. He says in verse 5, He says, turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. She is this overpowering uh, uh, presence for him. Uh, Woman is an overpowering mystery to man. She is fascinating to man. Perhaps, and I don't know this and I can't confirm it, but perhaps woman is more fascinating to man than man is to woman. Uh, women seem to have this complexity that men don't possess. So, so he describes her with this, this cosmic language. It's, it's out of this world. In verse 10, who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun? She's like the heavenly host in all of her power and beauty and wonder. And so you see what's happened to her since chapter 1. She's been elevated from a position of servitude in her brother's vineyard. She's been elevated to this high throne. She started out despised. But now, because she is joined to her beloved, everyone sees her and praises her. In verse 9, the daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, and they praised her. She has gone from despised to delighted in and both the man and the woman in their respective songs seem to enjoy the fact that others recognize the beauty of their beloved. They approve of each other, but they want others to as well. Remember, he's saying, you're like a mare among the chariots. You distract all the, all the other stallions. You get the notice of all the other stallions. In, in chapter 1, she says, all the virgins adore you. All the virgins admire you, my beloved. So their love for each other is enhanced when others outside of the relationship approve of and delight in their love. It's it's like he says, she is so great. Oh my goodness. She's so great. Don't even talk to her. I'm not, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to keep talking about her. She is so wonderful. Do you know how great she is? And she tells her friends, oh, this is, this is why I love him so much. Can't you see it? When, when, when something is this great, you want other people to share your delight. We're, we're always doing this, right? Oh, you haven't tried this? I mean, this burger place. Man, they got great burgers. You haven't tried this? I'm going to take you there. I want you to see how great this, this burger is. It's really good. Did you, you haven't heard this album? Oh, my goodness. How have you not heard this album? You've got to listen to this. Read this poem. Read this book. We, we share these things with each other. So in a way, it amplifies our enjoyment and this is what both of them are doing they're 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 uh, uh, enjoying the enjoyment of other people for their love and for their beloved and in the same way the church wants the world to know we want to know uh, we want everybody to know how wonderful our savior is we want everybody to know how wonderful our mighty bridegroom is don't don't you see how great he is share in this joy and jesus wants the world to know how beautiful his church is and so a good question that this poses to us as we think of these descriptions of beauty a good question is what is our standard of beauty where do we get where do we get our standard who defines for you what is beautiful and attractive who defines what is lovely praiseworthy, pure. There's a physical dimension to this and a spiritual. I'm going to spend about one minute on each. But there's also an individual and a communal dimension as well. First, physically, uh, we all, I'm trying to answer the question, where do you get your understanding, your definition of beauty and praiseworthiness? We all must learn to be grateful to God for who we are and how He's made us. Men, give thanks to God that you are a man created with male responsibilities. Women, give thanks to God that he made you a woman with female responsibilities. Give thanks and praise to God for your height, for your body type, for your skin color, for your hair color, for your nose, for your brain. This is not Mr. Rogers' self-esteem time. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not saying, you know you're perfect just the way you are. That's not, I'm not Mr. Rogers. What, what it is is gratitude and thanks to God for how he made you and who he made you in order to combat the ingratitude that is always assailing us from our society. This, this ingratitude that leads us to compare ourselves and, and compare a lot of things that we can't change against other people. God made you. Because he wanted one of you. When you're comparing yourself to somebody else, look, he didn't want another one of those other people. He's already got one of them. He's got one of them. He needs you. And he needs one of you. And he wanted one of you so much that he made someone who looked just like you. And so we're called, gratitude calls us to be comfortable in the skin, in the body, in the sex that God has sovereignly given us. That's a physical dimension to this, but there's a spiritual dimension of beauty and loveliness as well. Remember, the Shulamite is elevated because of who she belongs to. Her beloved is mighty and wonderful and formidable, so she is as well. So in the same way, you are spiritually pure, you are clean, you are beautiful because of the beauty and the righteousness that has been imputed to you by Jesus. He declares you justified. He says you are beautiful, and so you are. When he creates, when God creates, he always expresses his pleasure. He creates and he says, this is very good. (coughs) So it goes with the new creation as well. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So this new creation with a new man, he says of you, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because you're united to Jesus, what he says of Jesus, he says to you, so this means then you're not worthless. You're not despised. You're not hopeless. You're not a lost cause. Do not despair. If you do not see yourself as precious in God's sight, if you do not see yourself as justified and good and beautiful, you're in error. If you are in Christ, you are justified, you are good, you are beautiful. And if you don't, if you don't uh, see that, you're in error. And God hasn't, made, God hasn't made the error. You have And all of this, I'm not denying, certainly even saying you're in error. I'm not denying that we sin, we do. We disappoint our beloved. We grieve his Holy Spirit. We don't get up out of bed when he knocks. We rebel and set up idols. But through trial and repentance, we are being transformed and renewed and conformed to the image of Christ, our beloved. We are being made more and more and more lovely. So recognize both these uh, beautiful things that God has declared of you in yourself, but also recognize this communally in others made in the image of God. If God finds her beautiful, if God delights in her, why do you shame her? why do you cut her down? If God is pleased with how he created him, why do you hate him? Why do you mock him? Why do you despise him? If God calls them justified, why do you hold them in contempt? Why do you set yourself up as their accuser? You see, Jesus loves his bride. You see here how intensely he loves his bride. Do you want to get between Jesus and his bride? I don't want to get in between Jesus and his bride. So I want to join my voice with the voice of my Savior, and I want to exalt her. I want to praise her. I want to edify her. I want to lift her up. And for the church, I'm speaking of the church, I want to share in her cosmic, awesome, militant formidable beauty. He has held her up to the world. Jesus holds the church up to the world and he says, this is what I admire. This is my definition of beauty. And so we have to conform our definition of beauty and purity, not to the worldly standard, not to something we've made up and crafted together, but, but conform our definition of beauty to Christ's. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the image of the romance that you've given us, this this romance between Yahweh and his people, between Christ and his church, the love between a man and a woman. Spur us on with this vision to love this way, to love just as passionately, to love just as warmly, to uh, throw ourselves in uh, to to our covenants uh, the way that these two have. So lead us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.